Welcome to Stocks Not Sports, the podcast where we try to talk about investment ideas in the same casual way we talk about sports with our acquaintances, work colleagues, friends, and family members. This podcast is brought to you by Infor Financial Group, who is committed to providing innovative, forward-thinking financial advice to all of their clients and customers. I'm Kenrick Sylvester, Principal and Head of Distribution. I have to note the following disclaimer. This podcast is not to be taken as investment advice, and participants or employees of Infor Financial Group may own securities discussed in this podcast. While we love all of our guests, this podcast may contain forward-looking statements, investment opinions, and comments that we do not agree with at all. Michigan have to bring it. Oh, he in. walked! He, he walked and the referee missed it! Weber brings it into the front court. They have no timeouts remaining. Oh, he causes he too many timeouts! That's a technical foul! He called a timeout. Michigan doesn't yes. have any. He got by with a walk, and Jimmy calls a technical... He, he calls a timeout. He doesn't realize that's Michigan's too many. And so it'll be a technical foul. North Carolina shooting and the ball. A huge mental mistake. Okay, today we would like to welcome Jimmy King Shan to the podcast. Uh, Jimmy, I just want to clarify a couple of things. First, that you're not the Jimmy King that played with the Fab Five Michigan freshman Wolverines uh, basketball team in the early 90s. Is that correct? <laughs> That's right. That's correct. Okay. Second, you are not the Jimmy King that had a cup of coffee with the Raptors during the 95-96 season. <laughs> that is correct. Unfortunately. <laughs> Who knows? Might have ended up with a better season if you played. However, you are the Jimmy King that won multiple awards as a top-ranked real estate analyst at several leading investment firms in Canada. And you are the Jimmy Shan, who is now a real estate investor at Slate, who collectively manages $6.5 billion in assets. Is that correct? Well, that sounds too nice, but I'll take it. Look, we're really happy to have you on the show. Uh, so welcome. Uh, instead of taking a few minutes to tell us about your background, we really like to do a speed dating questionnaire where we try to learn more about you in a few seconds. Uh, you ready? Yeah, I'm set. Okay, here we go. Speed round question number one. Uh, what high school did you attend? Albert Campbell Collegiate in Scarborough. What was your uh, post-secondary education? Oh, I have a few letters uh, next to my name, so I'm going to geek out a bit here. BBA, MBA, CA, I, I guess now CPA, and I also had a lame attempt at CFA. I, I finished level one and didn't bother continuing. Oh, man. Well, you, that's not a couple of letters, man. That's uh, half the <laughs> alphabet. That's good. Um, married with children? Yes. As far as I know, still I am married and uh, two daughters, so three women in the household. You know, one one uh, one tells me what to do, one avoids me, and one laughs at me. So I'm here hiding in the basement. <laughs> Actually, I'm in my basement as well, so we have that in common. Uh, books or podcasts? Podcasts. Quicker way to get ideas, I find. I 100% agree. Uh, beer or wine? Beer. Pizza or hamburger? Hamburger. All right, beer and hamburger. Pen or keyboard? Um, I'd say pen for to-do lists. I like to scratch things out when, I'm, when I get it done. Uh, and keyboard for everything else. Gotcha. All right. Video games or foosball? Foosball by a mile. Oh, okay. We'll take that up a little later. Uh, TV, <laughs> linear or streaming? What's linear TV? Are we talking cable? Buddy. Where have you been the last 10 years? <laughs> I'm going to go with streaming. Sounds more tech savvy. <laughs> okay. I was going to give you the, sit you down beside my dad. Actually, linear TV is cable. Okay. Streaming. We like that answer. All right. Here's the big one. Music, R&B, hip hop, rock, pop, country, or classical. You know what? Whatever my girls tell me. So if it's Shawn Mendes, I'm 
I'm going to be listening to Shawn Mendes. Wow. That would be pop. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's actually a good answer because your family might listen to this. That's a good little rundown in terms of trying to get to know you a little better. Uh, please give us a little background on your professional career and what attracted you to your current business. Yeah. So, you know, I trained as a, as a CA, you know, did some, did some auditing, really didn't like it. Uh, went back to school and, and did an MBA with a, with a specialty in finance. Uh, and then out of school, I, I got a, an investment banking gig at, at uh, Merrill Lynch, I guess now uh, Bank of America. You know, really enjoyed the work there and the deal-oriented nature of the work. Uh, really like working with some really, really smart people. But I think what I found uh, challenging was, was, you know, when you work 16-hour days and you come back the next day and your your peers are pounding their chest. And I just felt like that wasn't for me. So I moved on and 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 switched over to equity research on the sell side. You know, that suited me a lot more, thinking analytically, you know, learning something new every day. You know, it was, it was, it was quite, quite interesting and challenging. So I spent the, you know, following eight years at a bank, you know, doing sell side research, primarily in real estate. Um, and then after that, I went on to another um, investment bank, and that's where I guess you and I met. So spent seven years over there, uh, over there at GMP, and where we kickstarted the the real estate franchise. So, so that's kind of you know essentially fifteen years in, on 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 the equity research side of the business. Um, and then a couple of years ago, my partner and I uh, we decided to launch um, Slate Securities, uh, a real estate securities platform at, at Slate. So I'd say like what, what really drove us to do that, we really saw an opportunity to provide investors and, and advisors a bit of a one-stop shop solution to real estate investing. At, at the investment bank, we, we saw investors putting money in a lot of bad real estate deals, poorly structured, poor, poor sponsors, poorly underwritten. And we felt that we, we could provide a solution for that. So that, that was kind of the impetus for, for starting it. And also... When you think about the asset class, you know we, we think it's gonna it's gonna have a long term secular tailwind behind it. Uh, we we live in a low yield world, and real estate is no longer an alternative. So so we felt that that would be, you know, helping us in in creating this new platform. And then what we did was we you know we married ourselves with Slate. I guess long winded way of saying like we 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 decided that we wanted to plunk ourselves in, into a, a private equity shop. Because we felt that that would give us the ability to see what's going on in the real world. As a result, would allow us to make much better decision, more informed decision, and really give us like a, a really good vantage point. On top of that, um, the Slate guys are, are pretty savvy real estate people, and we felt we could also get access to some of the deals that they're doing, which would be which would be very interesting. That's great. I mean, obviously, we have a long history together, and I've always found you to be quite a thoughtful investor. So the move for me made total sense. But for you, what was the real aha moment that made you think that definitely this is the right move for you? Yeah, I, I'm not sure if there was an, uh, uh, you know, an aha moment per se. But but what I would say is this: um, the core of what I do in terms of you know managing an, an investment portfolio in real estate is no different than managing any portfolio, and and that is. You know, I read a lot. I think a lot. Probably should be thinking more, but but I do think. Um, and then I make decisions. So read, think, and make decisions. And I would say, you know, with with COVID, this went on overdrive. In other words, like when you think about the distractions um, 
a lot of the distractions were cut out. Like I, I no longer travel. I no longer commute. I, you know, um, if work from home and, you know, socializing in the office, socializing with clients, marketing, uh, even in the personal life, a lot of distractions got cut out. So basically the core activity, uh, you know, of reading, thinking and making decision, you know, has been enhanced. And, and, you know, when I think back um, or when I think about it today, this set of core activities is really what I enjoy the most. So, you know, I think that the litmus, litmus test for a lot of people about, you know, about whether you like your work is, you know, would you do these things even if you didn't get paid? And, and, and I tell you, maybe in the initial years when we launched the business, that's kind of what the situation we're in. But I tell you that those three activities is, uh, is, uh, is exactly what I would do if, if, even if I weren't getting paid or even if I, you know, even if I was, you know, quote unquote retired. Um, you know, maybe the only exception is I'd be doing with my funds as opposed to my and my partners and my, my investors funds. The, the other thing is, um, you know, there's a great quote. I don't know if you know Naval Ravikant. One of the things he said, uh, which really spoke to me was, you know, you got to earn with your mind and not your time. And, and I think it's, 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 it spoke to me in a couple of ways. Um, one, you know, getting paid for, for making decisions, getting paid for your judgment, I, I find is, is incredibly gratifying. Um, also incredibly stressful, but gratifying when, when, when your judgment is, ends up being right. On the sales side, I used, we used to get paid based on your advice. And now, you know, when you're actually running a portfolio, we're making decisions, we, it kind of completes the loop for me. So I think that's on a personal, at a personal level. The the other the other thing about earning with your mind and not your time is the idea of optimizing leverage, optimizing for leverage. So the example I think you gave was like if if you're a plumber, you're a construction worker, you're a doctor, dentist, or you know, you get paid for your time. The more you work, the more you get paid. So the, the payoff is linear. But if you get paid for your judgment for making decisions that payoff can be exponential. So in other words, if I run a $1 million portfolio or if I run a $100 million portfolio or a billion dollar portfolio, like the business has massive scale. And so that same decision can have multiple effect. The way I think about it is, you know, our, in our business of managing assets, in a, in a kind of a weird way, it is similar to tech companies, right? Like if somebody writes a, a software code of an app that is used increasingly by many, many, many people, that has huge nonlinear payoffs. That's how I'd like to think our business to be is that we you know we can we can grow it at scale by doing something that I already enjoy doing. Um, that's a wonderful quote. I gotta be honest, I was expecting a Sean Mendez quote, but that was that was much better. Um, <laughs> but listen, obviously you're very thoughtful and cerebral about the sector. For for the rest of us, it's safe to say that everyone has an aunt or an uncle or a cousin who thinks they know everything they need to know uh, about real estate. Why are people so convinced that real estate values always go up? And what makes them think that they're untrained experts? Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, we, we all know the, the famous uncle who talks about uh, how much money he's made on this and this and that. And, and that's, that's quite funny. But w- one thing I'd say is, you know, first of all, that, you know, let's differentiate between when we talk about real estate, you know, we're investing in commercial real estate. Um, as opposed to to your home or, or your residential real estate, and so you know, home is is a completely different decision. Home is is a lifestyle decision. It's a product we consume. 
whereas commercial real estate, the one that we're in the business of investing in, it's an investing decision, it's a productive asset, it generates cash flow. So there's a there's a big difference and, and the return requirement is is really the big difference, right? You know, what you talk about in terms of real estate being a popular topic at dinner parties, that's to me it kind of makes sense. Like, you know, the, the majority it's you know, real your home is is usually the majority of most people's wealth. And then on top of that, we've had a massive tailwind uh, in the last, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, you know, interest rates have been on the decline. Immigration policies have been very uh, supportive. We've had all kinds of land use restrictions, right? And then now you think about the pandemic impact, like, you know, people want more space. People want a home office. Um, and so... It's no wonder people talk about it, you know, at dinner parties, and and because a lot of people, quite frankly, in the GTA, uh, in Vancouver, uh, also places like that, and you know, they've they've won the house lottery. But as we all know, um, people often underestimate uh, the importance of luck versus skill. You know, Annie Duke. I don't know if you read that book, Ken, but Thinking in Bets. That's a great book. Anyway, she talks about the concept of resulting. And, and we talk about that a lot in our letters to investors. We talk about how it's very easy to judge uh, the quality of a decision based on the outcome, you know, which is really not what you're supposed to do. So I think a lot of people, when they think about their home, they've made so much money. I think most people in the GTA who's bought a house, you know, in the last decade or so have, you know, have done really well. And, you know, we feel that we've made a good decision buying that house. So we're going to go out and recommend other people do the same because, you know, that, that's the classic case of resulting. You know, I'm always cautious of that. You know, you know we always say in, in, in investing land now that the most dangerous investor is one who's young, aggressive, made a lot of money and, and has yet to experience a recession or a massive correction, right? You, you could almost draw the same parallel with, you know, what you talk about. And, um, and the, the only difference is that the housing cycle is, is, is a little bit different than the investing cycle. And maybe it, it's a lot more extended. And uh, with rates being where it is, I think it's inflated assets quite a bit. And so, uh, I don't know, you know, no, one's, no one can predict that, but, but I feel it's, uh, it's, it's one where, you know, we just got to be cautious of making resulting issues, right? Absolutely. I mean, we've all had that conversation where it's very rare that, people can make an investment, go to sleep at night and wake up the next morning and, it's, and they've made money without doing a lot of uh, work beforehand. So, I mean, that's generally the case in real estate. Most people, you know, have invested in their homes. And as you say, it's uh, the majority of their wealth. So uh, it, uh, it seems like you wake up with a smile every day when you, you feel richer. Um, listen, I wanted to move on to, uh, to another question. Um, what's your Air Jordan idea? Um, for those of us who've worked in a sports store or a sneaker store, uh, we know that there's nothing better than an Air Jordan sale since they essentially sell themselves. What current theme or idea do you have that essentially sells itself? <laughs> I remember you, you. I remember your sneakers. They all look pretty snazzy. Um, Air Jordan moment. Um, you know, I, I, I think I think today the Air Jordan moment in real estate is uh, in commercial real estate is e-commerce impact on 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 industrial on the industrial logistics asset class. I, I think when you look at the major players who invest in commercial real estate today, like pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, they all want industrial assets. They all want logistics assets. And the industrial asset class has been the direct beneficiary of online shopping and e-commerce activity. I think the this, this stat is, is, and I might, I might get this 
um, off a little bit, but something like if widgets that are sold through an e-commerce platform versus bricks and mortar store uh, require about two to three times more uh, the amount of warehouse space. So there's a lot of demand just by shifting from bricks and mortar retail store to 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 a warehouse. And and when you look at what's going on on the on the demand side of the equation, like the major tenets of these industrial boxes, there, there are really three buckets. One is the consumer product uh, companies. When you think about what's happening with the pandemic today, a lot of people are buying goods and not services, which, you know, people aren't going to restaurants, people, you know, uh, hair salons, like services is in a depression, basically, and goods are, are not. And, and so these consumer packaged goods, which, you know, take up a lot of those industrial space are actually doing incredibly well. The other big tenant of industrial are logistics providers. I think almost all surviving retail shops out there need, you know, somehow have had to enhance their online offering during this pandemic. So logistics providers and and these retail, uh, you know, shops would be using these logistics providers for delivery. So they're doing well. And then of course, there's the the e-commerce, pure play e-commerce companies like Amazon, Wayfair, and just this morning, uh, two two delivery events, and you know UPS uh, came to deliver uh, stuff at my house this morning, right? So e-commerce is doing incredibly well. People have said that the pandemic has pulled forward almost three years of e-commerce penetration. So if e-commerce as a percentage of total sales was something in the range of ten percent before COVID, today it's probably thirteen, fourteen, fifteen percent. So it's significantly accelerated that, and industrial is really the Air Jordan moment today. Now, the issue is um, everybody wants industrial and pension funds have historically invested in office and, and malls. And as we all know, malls are the other side of that trade and malls are, you know, there's, there's a lot of suffering going on there. And so pension funds want to under allocate to, to malls and over allocate to, to industrial, which is, you know, which makes it even that much tougher. So the issue today is, you know, Air Jordan does not go on sale and industrial is not on sale. You know, in fact, industrial asset values are, are up from, from pre-COVID. From our perspective, when we're managing money, you know, we, you know, we feel like we got to be more tactical in trying to get exposure to that space because no doubt that the industrial asset class will continue to do well because the e-commerce is a long-term, long-term trend, secular trend. So we got to get creative in, in how we we approach and get exposure to that sector. The the way we do that is you know is you know in the public markets when we saw the massive dislocation back in March, um, you know we did increase our exposure to to the to the industrial REITs, and then in the private markets you know we look for kind of unique opportunities. And so I'll give you an example. Like we last year we bought a a. We we bought an equity interest, a small equity interest in a in a in a property in Scarborough, uh, an industrial property, and you know we paid about one hundred and twenty five dollars per square foot when market is closer to closer to two hundred. So you know how do we get these opportunities in the private market? We well a it was off market and and again there was like unique circumstance. You know the seller had a broker who was a little bit out of touch. You know the guys who brought us the deal had you know, had, had harassed them quite a bit. And so there's a unique, you know, kind of idiosyncratic opportunity that we're able to take advantage of. And so that that's why, like, you know, you know, at the outset, I talked about how we can pivot from public to, to private and how we can do both. And that's kind of how we have to um, to go about it. Um, you know, Slate as it overall has made a, a, a decent bet on food logistics, i.e. the grocery store. And so that's, you know, that's one way we look at it. 
Um, and then the other one is, you know, one, one, uh, giving a, a specific example, like if you look at Canadian Tire Store, right now, can a Canadian Tire Store, if most people tell you, okay, um, do you want to buy a Canadian Tire Store? People would think, well, it's retail and retail is, is generally considered bad. But when you look at the Canadian Tire Store, it is very much an industrial property. It's a rectangle. Uh, it's got high ceilings. And, you know, in my mind, it's probably the best infill industrial asset you can you can think of so this is kind of how you have to get a little bit more creative so while you know um, key entire may look retail it, it is in fact very much an industrial property in our minds okay jimmy that's uh that's that's fascinating i mean obviously a couple of stats that always you know that jumped across my page uh, as we all know like amazon is 50 percent of all uh, online transactions and to your point about nike uh, they said that they're during the pandemic they got up to about thirty percent online sales, which is about uh, two years in advance of uh, of what they had expected. Uh, I wanted to ask more about your private opportunities in, in, in a, an asset class like industrial. Would you allocate more to privates? What do you think about uh, how much you can invest in the private market, and, and how do you monetize those investments? Yeah, I mean. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, that's one of the things that we do on a continuous basis. We compare what's going on in the private market versus the public market. And then based on the value equation, the value calculus will will determine where we deploy. Actually, up until even today, the opportunity is still in the public markets for the most part. Um, the private market is uh, there isn't a whole lot of transaction going on. Our view is that over the next 12 to 18 months, there's probably going to be more transaction in the private market. And, and as they surface, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll definitely take a close look at them. But, but right now, given that there's still a, a bit of a disconnect between the two, you know, our, our preference right now, and, and quite frankly, the opportunity still is in, in the public markets. Okay. I wanted to touch on another comment that you made. When do the malls or the restaurant REITs become attractive enough for a casual investor to start buying? Yeah, um, I think malls is fundamentally challenged. You, you know, um, you know, e-commerce as we we know is is wreaking havoc, but also malls were also you know they charge high rents. They're hard to convert, and we've been especially in the U.S. Uh, there's been an over mall. You know, it's over retail. I think there's money to be made selectively uh, depending on pricing. You know, but but it is challenged. You know, like. You know, Brookfield is handing keys in some of their malls. Um, I, I just read CPP had to take over a mall in Manchester because no one wanted to buy it. You know, the, we've had some bankruptcies in, in some of the in the REIT space, CBO and bankrupt, and so I tread very care, carefully, uh, cautiously in in the mall space. Um, like we currently do not have any exposure to the mall space, uh, direct exposure in the mall space. But service-oriented type of retail, um, so the ones that have exposure to restaurants and you know, even even movie theaters. You know, I, I think there's a good chunk of it will come back, right? Uh, you know, I don't think it's it's not e-commerce challenged. And in fact, you could argue there's probably some pent up demand in some of those some of those restaurant businesses. And so, I, I think the trick with owning the type of real estate that have exposure to those is just to make sure that the, that that the landlords, you know, that they're collecting their rent, that the tenants aren't burning cash that they cannot survive anymore. And, and that they could see through the other side. You know, the vaccine has been a great game changer. Um, and in fact, what we're seeing today is that some tenants are, are almost acting a little differently now that, there's, that now, now that we know there's a vaccine out there. And so, like, if you can think about it, like those who, you know, were on the verge of, 
not making it are now saying, hey, you know what, let's try to hold on for the next three, four months because we know there's another side now. Okay, that totally makes sense. Um, let's talk about uh, a couple of other topics. During our last talk, you noted that during COVID-19, the Canadian REIT sector had dramatically underperformed the negative earnings revisions and in almost all real estate classes, private markets were not pricing in as steep a decline as the public markets were. Are the public markets too pessimistic versus the analyst community and uh, private markets? Yeah, I mean, look, I think um, public markets almost always over discount uncertainty, but but they generally get it right because it's the collective, right? So it's a collection of individual decisions, which is usually better than one person's decision. But I would say, um, you know, like right now, the gap has narrowed quite considerably to when we had that last talk um, because because of the vaccine rally. I would say that the, the fat tails have been cut off. When COVID hit, the range of probable outcome was very wide. Today, because the, those tails have been cut off with, with a vaccine uh, now in sight and, and that we'll, we'll see through the SI, that's been cut off. So I would say now when you compare uh, the public market's values versus the private market values or even the analyst estimates, I would say that gap has has meaningfully narrowed, but still, uh, public markets are are pricing more of a decline than than what we're observing. If COVID, I'm just using round numbers. Like if if pre-vaccine, the the private market values were estimated to be down 10%, the public market would have been pricing in about about twice as much, you know, 20% decline. And today, that's maybe a you know a 12 versus eight equation kind of thing. Definitely, public market is less pessimistic today versus market versus street estimates. But there are gaps. There are material and meaningful gaps in certain sectors. So sectors like office, for instance, apartments in in dense neighborhoods, sectors like seniors housing, still there's a big gap between public and private market. Um, and, and that's, again, understandable because right now, you know, the work from home impact on, on the future of office is a big question mark. You know, the people now talking about de-densification trend and, you know, is New York going to come back uh, or not? All of those are clouds, and that's what's causing the, the discrepancy between public versus private. Now, the dynamic between in, in the private markets is, is that, it again, it's slow to react. You know, public markets react first, react fast, and react aggressively, whereas private markets is, is very slow. And, and the, the, the private market, Transaction volume is very low, but but also what's what's causing the reaction to be slower is the fact that debt financing is still quite available. There's a lot of publicly traded REITs in the hard hit asset classes like hotels and malls are still able to access capital markets, uh, debt capital markets at a very, very cheap rate. Because of that, you're not seeing a lot of distress. And as a result, you're not seeing a lot of transaction volume. You could argue that there isn't really price discovery yet in the private markets, so that's what's causing the the the, the discrepancy. Uh, I, I think there there's still opportunities in the public markets you could pick at and and earn some decent risk adjusted return. Can we can we further stratify that in terms of geography? Um, or are you seeing similar trends in Canada, U.S., Europe? What are your thoughts there? In geography, well, geography wise, the the it's interesting. I'll give you one example in, in the U.S. New York apartments, San Francisco apartments, um, rents are declining quite dramatically. If you look at what's going on in, in the, because of the, 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 such a negative fundamental, you're not seeing a whole lot of transaction in, in the private market. Like, you know, you, you don't, you don't see a lot of New York apartments being traded. There's just, 
just too much uncertainty and, and people aren't willing to trade it. And when, but when you look at the Sunbelt markets of the United States, people who have assets in Florida, Nashville, Atlanta, the fundamentals are much stronger. And when you look at transactions that are going on there, there's actually more transactions going on there. And the transactions are at prices that are actually quite strong at COVID level, if not even higher. The disconnect between geographies is actually quite stark uh, when, you, when you think about that. And, and then when you look at it in terms of the public markets, uh, the difference is also there as well. Coastal New York City apartments are trading uh, at a much wider discount than a Sunbelt focused apartment. In Canada, it's, um, it plays out in, in the geographies of Alberta versus everything else, effectively, right? Uh, Alberta has been hard hit a, a little bit because of, um, a, because of the COVID and also B, B, because of just the economy and being oil and gas driven. There is a big disconnect in price per door, in cap rates and whatever you want to look at between the Alberta, anything in Alberta versus, versus GTA. So that's where that's where we're seeing these big differences, and that's where you know we we try to pick our spots in terms of where within those different geographies we can play. Right, that makes sense. Let's talk about returns for a little bit. Let's let's talk about the historically widespread between the ten-year Canada yield and the Canadian REIT yield. Um, when do you think the spread will normalize, and what kind of return does that imply for the Canadian REITs? Right. So, so you know, when we, we did a, a, a webinar a month ago, or a couple of months ago, um, you know, one of the things that we were, we were talking about was the idea that if you look at the Canadian REIT yield versus the 10-year bond yield, it was at a spread that was wider than historical average. And in fact, it was double to where it was pre-COVID. And when we normalize that spread to what it should be, uh, you know, in terms of a, of, of a historical average, you know, we implied about a 40%, 40% upside to the REIT space. And that was uh, prior to the vaccine news. I would say that if you run the same math, the upside would look closer to 20 to 25%. You know, the question is like, when does that happen? And, and you know, what causes that to, to, to normalize? And the answer is, I, I don't know when that, that'll happen. But what I do know is when you look at the fixed income world, it should give you a clue. Because most of the fixed income world today is yielding next to nothing. Um, so I'm going to recite some stats for you. Like in the U.S., uh, the, the, the fixed income market in the U.S. is a $30 trillion mar- uh, dollar market. Two-thirds of the $30 trillion, $20 trillion, are yielding less than 1.5%. The U.S. REIT market, the total market cap of, of U.S. REITs, is about $1.3 trillion, yielding about 3 so 20 trillion yielding less than one and a half versus 1.3 trillion yielding double that, right? The Canadian REIT market is 100 billion and, and you know, Canadian REIT market is yielding about five and a half. And keep in mind, this is on a yield on an income that is probably going to be better next year than it is this year. The question I, I ask is when will the 20 trillion fixed income investors start to reach for yield? Um, because when they start doing that, spreads will normalize, and that's when we're going to see some pretty up, you know, decent uptick in, in the yield space. Um, and, and for the fixed income investor to reach that yield, the fixed income investor wants fixed income. They want to see that income as fixed as possible. And what that means in my mind is just we need to get back to normalcy to a certain degree. 
We need to have people congregate again, which is what commercial real estate is mostly about. And so once that happens, you know, we could see, you know, we feel like that would be the catalyst to, you know, to get the sector going again. That's fascinating, man. That, that, that really makes sense. Um, let's talk a little bit about maybe the, the not so bright side of your career and your business. What was your, your quote unquote, get them off the field moment? You know, you know, the moment we've all had it, you've made a big mistake. Everyone wants you to shoulder the blame. How did you deal with that? And, and how did you recover? You know, I've certainly made a lot of mistakes. What I constantly do is is run the sort of so-called counterfactual thinking, and i.e., what what are the possible alternatives that I could have chosen but I didn't? Uh, I'm in the business of making decisions, and to me, the the biggest mistakes are always what I didn't do that if I had done could have resulted in X, Y, and Z. Just this year alone, tw- on March 23rd, uh, the counterfactual thinking would be, man, I should have gone all in. You know, in January, actually, internally, we were discussing um, about putting on a hedge on the portfolio, which we did not end up doing, uh, which, again, would have resulted in, in you know, a much better outcome, I would say, um, as a result of this pandemic. And then in August, uh, just before, you know, August in the summer, we were actually thinking hard about, you know, buying some out-of-money call options on hotels because we thought, you know, this thing was going to rally on the vaccine news and et cetera, et cetera. So, all of those things, you know, when you look back, you could have considered to be opportunity cost type of mistakes. What I've learned is, you know, we just kind of have to constantly fine tune the decision making process. Somebody, actually somebody, you know, I remember during at the height of the, the, the pandemic, we were exchanging notes and he suggested to me uh, that I should be doing a diary, right? And which I've never done before. Um, and you know what, like I actually did start, you know, to write things, some things down. And you, you know what, there's a lot of benefits to doing that and, and and actually as i look back there's a lot of lessons learned you know seemingly small ideas you know had co- massive consequence to the portfolio you know position sizing sticking to your philosophy spending more time on the big decision like all those things you know kind of you know is are, are, are important and i think doing a diary and actually fine-tuning that decision making process is, is actually quite useful uh, i think it was hard marks who said he's like uh, there's two kinds of people who lose money, those who know nothing and those who know everything. So when I think about like my worst mistakes, it, it's, it's usually is when I've, when you've approached those two buckets, you know, like I remember buying stocks and, you know, like, you know, those, those high flyer stocks that we, we knew of when back in our GMP days, um, you know, I bought stuff that I knew nothing about, lost money. And then when I think about, you know, and other set other times when I've made investment where I felt so overconfident, I actually have lost money because I've I've overbet on on the name and and not were not aware was not aware of my blind spots. You know, when I think about those, you know, the philosophy now that I try to abide by is right really to try to know everything, but fully appreciate that there are definitely blind spots and that you got to be you know that you got to be careful of. Once again, I was wrong. I thought the answer to this question would be admitting that you listen to Sean Mendes, but <laughs> um, I got a lot to learn. I, maybe I should start listening to Sean Mendes to be. At least I didn't say Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jimmy, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Ultimately, what do we learn today? What would you like to leave with the audience in terms of final thesis or message? Well, hopefully, our discussion today, you know, g- give a sense to your audience of how we think over here at Slate Securities. You know, I think that's probably the most important thing is is our philosophy, our process. Those are all important in in making decisions. We 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 write a, a monthly newsletter uh, that we send to our investors and and also interested interested parties. We've done so since we launched the fund, and 
we describe our philosophy, our portfolio construction, our our views of the world, and and, and what's going on in in the world of real estate. You know, we believe in in communication. We think that's actually best align us to ourselves to, with investors and full transparency. So, you know, I mean, I don't have any specific final message, but I would say, you know, taking a look at those letters, understanding those, I think um, would be what I would leave the audience with. One last question before I let you go. If you could own and run a sports team, which one would it be and why? And keep in mind that the audience does not know that you are an excellent soccer player, the moder- the marauder from Mauritius. What is your answer? <laughs> well, I'm going to have to go with Tottenham Hotspur. Oh, I hate um, Mourinho. I hate Mourinho. Sorry, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. You know what? They're good enough to win the league, but they're not perfect enough. And this is exactly the situation I want to be in, right? Like they're they're a bit is not an under not quite an underdog, but not perfect enough. And and you could always root for that. And so they haven't won in a long time. They've got a you're right. They've got a big personality coach. That would be my dream job. Okay, so how do you win a championship? You 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 own you run Tottenham Hotspur. Who are you buying in the transfer window in January? Oof, that's a good question. I you know what they've had such a great transfer window recently in the summer. That I think they're good. They, you know, they're good. They're good. They just they just need to they just need to work with who they've got. You know, and and continue the Mourinho philosophy. And I think you'll get there. You mean parking the bus in big games? Touche, <laughs> <laughs> oh, touche. <laughs> All right, let's let's end on that, Jimmy. Listen, I really appreciate it. It's it's always a, a pleasure and a learning experience to get a chance to sit down and, and talk to you and, and interact with you. So. Thank you for your time and all the best with, uh, with Slate and uh, happy holidays, my friend. Thanks. Same to you. This was fun. Thanks for listening to the show. If you enjoyed the podcast, check your app now to make sure that you've subscribed so that you don't miss an episode. I'm Kenneth Sylvester, and I'll see you next time. Problems and personal issues, stories that I make your eyes tear and wet tissue. It's true, I'm mad like the rapper. I'm so upset I gotta put it up in my rap before I snap or after. The things I've seen from Atlanta to Queens to the mean streets of Brooklyn when I was a teen. Back and forth to the islands, screamed when I left, but adapted. And still my dreams haven't left. I only hung with the crack kids, weaned out the rest. Me and the roughest roughnecks went chest to chest. Now my best friend's locked up north, I won't rest till I I let him live his dream through me And I confess that even though Both our hearts was dark His was darker Best believe when shit got sparked He was the sparker And when the block got hot He was the fire starter